Hi, my name is Colin Cook, and you're listening to a public podcast. If you want more information about anything going on here at Public Church, visit our website, publicchurch.com. Thanks for listening. Now, I know I'm a little weird. I'm self-aware of that, but that video fires me up. I know it's just real short, but it really excites me because we are in week two of our series called A Love I Can't Shake. And really the essence and the heart of this series is us understanding that Jesus's love is compelling, that the love of Jesus, it's really intriguing and quite simply in ways we can't articulate, his love pulls at our hearts and evokes emotions in us that just don't make sense. In fact, some of you have already felt those emotions. We just sang before hosting an incredible song, Won't Stop Now by Elevation Worship. And as this particular phrase, as we sang it, that your presence is an open door. We want you, Lord, like never before. There are some of you that don't follow Jesus, or you're not sure if you follow Jesus, but you found yourself kind of like singing. I'm not going to sing. Don't worry. You can relax. But you find yourself kind of singing that, and we repeat it again. You find yourself kind of singing a little bit louder, and repeat it again, and you're like, I kind of want that to be true. And all of a sudden, you're like, whoa, what, stop. What, what's your problem? You don't follow Jesus. Like, I'm not sure if that's true or not. We're going to put it back on the screen because it just, it kept coming, and you kept thinking your presence is an open door. Once you, Lord, like never before, and you're like, ah, where, where is this coming from? I can tell you where it's coming from. It's the love of Jesus that compels you, that draws you in. A love that we try to escape, but we can never shake. That's the love of Jesus. And that's what this series is about. So if you're here and you don't follow Jesus, whether you're out in the lobby, can we give a shout out to our lobby crew and let them know we love them? Yep. If you're in the back row of the lobby or if you're all the way up here on the front row and you don't follow Jesus, you're not sure if you follow Jesus, know this, this series is dedicated to you. We wanna give you space to explore this love, to lean into these emotions that you feel that you're not really sure what you're feeling and what they mean. We wanna give you an opportunity just to explore that love. And we hope that by the end of it, that you'll stop trying to shake his love and you will simply embrace it. And really, when I think about this whole idea of a love I can't shake, I think about Derek's story, and I specifically think about the question that I think he would want to ask to all of us, which is, why didn't somebody, why didn't more people, why didn't people just keep telling me that this is real? Because he spent most of his life, you know, as you heard in his story, just thinking he was a Christian and really thinking that meant he needed to be moral, he needed to be good, he needed to do the right things but he did not understand the surrender. He did not understand what it really meant to give in to this love, to embrace this love and to surrender to Jesus. And so if you're here and you don't follow him, if you're here and you're not sure we're at with Jesus, know this, it's real. Following Jesus is real. His love is real. And that's why we're all so excited about Easter at Public Church. Hannah talked about a couple of the events coming up. But look, here's the point of this series and this season. We wanna provide space for people to figure out what they think about Jesus. To instead of trying to run away from and shake this love, space for them to come in and for them to experience and lean in and hopefully embrace the love of Jesus. So if your parent and you have kids, man, come out to the egg hunt and invite your friends and family. It's gonna be an incredible time for us to serve our community and love on them through a simple egg hunt. And then worship night, that's really the end of this series. We're ending this series with worship night as we have a full gathering at the 4 p.m. on April 14th just to focus on, to sing praises about the love of Jesus. What an opportunity. 
And then on Easter, we're doing something that we've never done before. And the people in the lobby crew were like, I'm glad you're doing it. We're hosting four gatherings. So that way, hopefully on Easter, we have enough seats in each gathering so that people aren't in the lobby, but they can be in here. So if you're a regular, and here's how we really define that. You come at least a couple times a month. You consider yourself a part of the public church family, or we would consider you that. We just invite you to simply serve by planning to come to the four or the six on Easter. I mean, just by giving up a seat, you're serving and creating space for a guest to come in and stop running away from the love they can't shake, but start running towards Jesus. It really is that simple. And so that's why I'm so excited about the season, about the opportunities we have coming up. And if you were with us last week, you know, we kicked off the series by talking about this concept of unaffected love. And so if you weren't with this, or maybe this is your first time, you missed last week, unaffected love is simply this. It's that no matter what you do to me, I love you back. And it's a powerful concept because it's the opposite of the transactional love that often characterizes our lives. And so as we talked about unaffected love last week, this week we're going to drop into a scene in Jesus's life as we continue to look at this love that we can't shake. And what's going to happen in this scene is Jesus is going to act in such a way and he's going to tell a story that reframes generosity. And at this point, some of you are like, seriously? I'm out. I'm going to like sneak out. Maybe nobody will notice if I just leave and walk out the door. And given the money talk, I thought you said that today was about people who don't follow Jesus. Today was about people who may have questions about following Jesus. And some of you are like, look, the reason I don't follow Jesus is because of the way churches talk about money. Why are you talking about that? Well, first, we're not just talking about money. We're talking about generosity. Generosity is a much broader concept that involves all of our resources. Yes, our money, but also including our, really our most precious one, which is our time. And what's going to happen is Jesus is going to reframe generosity in a way that honestly most of us have never considered. Now some of you are not really mad that we're talking about generosity. You're just a little confused and you're probably asking a really good question like what does love and generosity have in common? Like I get the title of the series. What in the world does a love I can't shake have to do with generosity? So great question. The answer that I want to ask you a question. How does your bank account affected by love? You ever thought about that? How is your bank account affected by love? Immediately, a fiance, that was awesome, Deanne, looked at Kyung Woo and was like, I'm sorry. Like, it's gone down. I know that. And Kyung Woo was like, but I love you, and we're going to get married. It's going to be okay. But seriously, I mean, think about the transition from being single to being in a relationship with somebody and what happens to your bank account. For a lot of us, it kind of does this. Do, do, do. It's kind of like a roller coaster. Sometimes it's really fast, sometimes it's kind of slow drop, and it kind of, you know, but it just goes down. Or at the very least, when you're in love, what happens is your money gets reallocated, doesn't it? Even if you have the discipline, yes, I'm with you. Even if you have the discipline to maybe keep it from going down, the stuff you used to buy, the things you used to do, what you used to spend your money on to benefit you, now suddenly you find yourself spending it on someone else because love makes us givers, doesn't it? I mean, think about it, parents. Think about all the things you buy for your kids that you really have no business buying for your kids. I mean, come on, I'm guilty of this. They got so many toys, I don't know what to do with, but we buy them one more because we love them and we got to give them stuff and they got to have a better life than we had. I mean, 
Love makes us givers, and what Jesus is going to do in the story is he's going to reframe generosity so that we understand this, that we naturally, naturally display love through generosity. Like, it's just what we do, because love makes us givers. Now, granted, some generosity is self-serving. I want to get a tax shot off. I'm going to give a big donation so I can get into this certain room and have influence. I get all that. But when we hear the word generosity, typically we think about the kind that is a natural display of our love. So very practical application. If you're single, don't miss this. If you are single, save your money. Because when you fall in love, it's going away. I'm kind of kidding, but everyone's like, no, you're not. Like, it's real. But, I mean, single people, let's be honest. Just because you're single doesn't mean you live a loveless life. Like, you spend your money on people you love, on organizations you love as well. We all do it. We naturally display love through generosity. It's just what we do. So even if we don't connect those two, that's what Jesus is going to connect for us. And here's what he wants us to understand, that as we naturally display love through generosity, we can't shake that kind of love because generosity sticks. Generosity creates stories that inspire us. Like when we come face to face with generosity, when someone is generous towards us or when we see people being generous, especially like sacrificial generosity, when we know that they're making a sacrifice to give, what it does is it evokes emotion in us, the emotions of admiration and awe. In fact, a lot of times when we're, te- when we're hearing those stories, we kind of have a physical response. We either like physically lean in or we get goosebumps. Like, man, they're so generous. I can't believe they did that. And we walk away from stories of generosity thinking, I want to be like that person. And so what we're gonna see in this story is that Jesus is gonna reframe generosity with love. And then he's gonna add one more experience. He's gonna intertwine three things together that most of the time we would never associate. So if you have your Bibles, if you have your Bible app, we're gonna be in Luke chapter seven, verse 36. If you don't, it's gonna be on the screen just to make it easy for you to be able to follow along. And as you're going there, just know that the author's name is Luke. He's a well-educated man and he's a doctor. And what we're looking at this week is a secondary source. In other words, Luke was not an eyewitness to these events, but if you read the opening of his book, what you're gonna see is he explains, man, I did my research. Like I sat down with eyewitnesses, I took notes, I talked to them, and this is an accurate account. In fact, if you read through the first couple chapters on several occasions, he's like, fact check me. He drops a fact, but he's like, fact check me, fact check me. I've done my research. You go check me out. It will prove true. And you may be like, oh, why do you mention that? Why, why does it matter who the author is? Man, because when I think about Luke sitting with eyewitnesses and going, oh, tell me more, oh, tell me more. And then I'm going back and double checking the facts and go, oh, tell me more. I think about that. Man, the Bible begins to come alive. When I think about the fact that we can rely on this because he dares us to fact check him. Man, these stories, they come alive. And what we need today is for this story to come alive. In order for us to get the full impact, we must feel the impact of those who were in the room with Jesus. So let's get emotionally engaged 
Today doesn't work without some participation on your part. Today doesn't work unless we open ourselves up to the emotions of this story. And to be honest, Jesus is a brilliant storyteller. He kind of pulls you in whether you want to be pulled in or not. But we need to get the full impact by feeling the impact of those who are in the room with him. So that being said, Luke chapter 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. And what we're going to see here is Jesus is eating a meal in the midst and in the home of a Pharisee. Now, one of my favorite parts of the series is that community groups are tracking along with our talks. Community groups meet in homes throughout the week. We've got one on Sunday and the rest are throughout the week. And here's the point of community groups. We get to enter a home be in a family atmosphere where we can connect with others on a deep level and go deeper into the story, go deeper than we can simply in this time together. And our community groups are phenomenal. And I think about last Monday night in our community group as we talked about the fact that Jesus was in the house of sinners, of the disreputable, the people that had bad reputations that everyone wanted to avoid, that he's in the house of sinners. Now this week, we see him in the house of the religious leaders But Jesus' behavior does not change. No matter the location, he's going to act the same. And before we see how he acts, there's one detail that we need to notice in verse 36, and it's this, that he reclined at the table. Because for most of us, when we eat at our houses, we just sit down, don't we? Okay? But what happens in this story, and it may be hard for you guys in the lobby to see it, but what they're going to do is they're actually going to recline. So if they're going to eat a meal, they're just going to lay down and they're going to prop up and they'll have their feet back. Or if you're on this side, just to help you see. So what they would do is they're going to lay down and they're just going to kind of prop up on an elbow and eat like this. And I immediately think indigestion, right? (laughs) I mean, how does all this work? And I'm like, I am so thankful for tables and chairs. I mean, anybody with me when I read this? But I mentioned that because that detail is going to come into play a little bit later on. So let's look at verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. That's my emphasis added. You'll see why in a minute. So she was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house. See the language here, when you combine a woman of the city who is a sinner, what it's saying is that everybody knew this woman. Everybody knew her reputation. Sinner probably means prostitute. And she had been given labels by the whole community. Labels like invisible, worthless, scum, contaminated, ooh. I mean, they had attached all these labels to her. And what happens is she's gonna sneak into this party. And as she sneaks in, look, they are not hiding their body language. Everybody's looking at her like, Who does she think she is? How did she get in here? I mean, they want her to know that they don't like her, that they don't want her there, and that she has no business being in that environment. And they're shocked by her presence. Now, we're shocked that she just walked in to a private dinner party, and we're like, who does that? Look, it was a different time and different era. And so their shock, I think we feel it even more when we realize The shock isn't that somebody random walked in on dinner. Like, that just happened. The shock was that she walked in on dinner. Simon, who's the host, 
He's a Pharisee. He is appalled that a woman such as this would come into his home. I mean, this is unbelievable. To help you think about it, if you don't follow Jesus, have you ever walked into a place and you knew you didn't belong? Like you walked in and everybody's like, do you know about her? Do you know about him? Or for those of us who follow Jesus, have you ever invited somebody who doesn't, a friend of yours, into a religious environment only to have all the eyes turned towards them and you like, who are you bringing her in here? Why, why are you bringing him in here? Do you know about her? Do you know about, like, hello? You ever felt that? That shame, those labels is exactly what she felt, not just at this dinner party, all the time. That's how she felt. There's one person who didn't respond that way, Jesus. And before we go on in the story, we need to take an aside just to notice another detail, the fact that she snuck into the religious leader's house. I think we need to understand and be very clear that we are not a church where people like this woman have to sneak in. Now, here's what we are. We are a church where we're gonna open the doors, put chairs in the lobby, make more room, do whatever we have to do, put people in the parking lot and say, man, we are so glad you're here. In fact, we have invited you to come into this place. It doesn't matter what label you've been given. It doesn't matter what your past is and what your reputation is. Hey, I'm gonna give up my seat so you can sit here, so you can hear about Jesus because he's changed me. And I want you to have the opportunity to be changed by him too. We're gonna have community groups where when somebody walks in, we're not like, who is she? We're like, yes, I'm glad you're here. Let me hear you your story. Let me make you a cup of coffee. Let me give you a cookie. We're going to have homes where people like this are welcomed and invited in. This is the kind of church we're going to be. That's what a public church is. Nobody's going to have to sneak in here. Like this woman had to sneak into this house because she knew Jesus was there. But for all of Simon and his friends, <laughs> they're just ticked that she snuck in. She has no business with them. And then notice what she does. And notice who doesn't respond like Simon and the rest of the Pharisees. At the rest of verse 37, when she learned he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. What an emotional scene. Here's where the detail of him reclining comes in. She has some anointing oil that she wants to put on Jesus. And when you anoint someone, what you do is you put that on their head, but she can't get to his head because he's reclining. All she can get to is his feet. And she knows that she's not welcome there. She knows that nobody besides Jesus, wants her there. And so she's not about to just walk in and be like, do her thing and anoint his head. She's like, all I can get to are the feet of Jesus. So I'm gonna pour out everything just on his feet. And here's what happens. She can get to his feet. She begins to cry. Not really on purpose, but I think she's overwhelmed by the fact that everybody looks at her like, who are you? And get out of here and you're contaminated and nobody likes you. But Jesus looks at her with love. And she's overwhelmed and she begins to just weep. The message version says she's raining tears on his feet. And then she's like, I don't have a towel. What am I gonna do? And so she lets down her hair and she begins to wipe his feet 
with her hair. And then she came to anoint his head because he's a king, and she recognizes that, and she wants to anoint him like a king, but she can't get to his head, so she just takes her anointing oil, and she pours it out on his feet. And if you look at the original language, here's what it really means. It means that she cries, and she wipes, and she anoints, and she cries, and she wipes, and she anoints, and she cries, and she wipes, and she anoints. The, the, the tent says, man, this is an ongoing action with no sign of it being completed, and she's just overwhelmed with the motion that Jesus loves her, and she's pouring herself out, and she's pouring out her tears and wiping her tears away with this hair, and everybody's like, who is she? What is she doing? And somebody get her out of here. And to really understand what we do, we need to understand the difference, or what she did. We need to understand the difference in these two things. See, typically, if you're going to anoint somebody, and this is part of the culture, you would use olive oil, like anointing oil. And this was common. If you really wanted to honor a guest in your home, they might come in, and you may pour this on their head, anointing oil. This is $18 modern day. What she used was an alabaster flask. Here's what that means. She poured this on it. This is called Le Labo, cologne, and it's $370. So here's how I found this out. A friend of mine was hanging out with Whitney and me, and Whitney was like, that cologne smells really good. You need to find out what it is. Now, just to clarify, Whitney was not interested in the man just in his cologne. I don't want to make my wife look bad, just to make sure we're good there, okay? And so we're like, man, that does smell good. I'm like, I want to find out what this is. I'm like, hey, what is your cologne? He goes, I knew you'd ask. He's like, it's, it's Le Labo. This stuff is only made in four cities in the world. New York City, LA, Honolulu, and a European city. So he's there, one of these cities. He saved his money, finds out how much it is. And this is about a year's supply. You know, when all said and done, this will last him about a year. And he said, I'm, I wanna buy this. And what they do is they literally like make the cologne in front of you. Like they're putting it together in front of you. And $370 later, he walks out with this. And I just want to visit the lobby crew because this stuff smells really good. You guys are out here. I hope the lobby smells good. I'm not saying it doesn't. But can anybody just smell this? Well, at Callie, you tell. Does it smell good? All right, Mallory. It smells great. Maybe. I'm just kidding. Okay. So this stuff smells phenomenal. But it's a year's supply, $370, versus this woman could have just used $18 anointing oil, but do you see her generosity? She said, no, 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 I'm not just going to use this. I'll be above and beyond if I do this. No, no, I'm going to use this that I've worked hard, I've saved hard for, to be honest, knowing her reputation. She may have used it for some not-so-noble purposes, but at this point in her life, she's like, I'm not just going to spray one spray on his feet. I'm going to open it up and pour this out on the feet of Jesus. Do you see that generosity was a natural display of her love? Her generosity was showing all of us that something had happened. She had had a previous encounter with Jesus where he loved her in a way she'd never been loved before, and now she can't help herself. And generosity is just a natural outpouring of the way that she has been loved. She can't control her emotions, and everybody in the room is criticizing her. But what they see is a love that they can't shake. They can't dismiss it. 
They can't run away from it. In fact, Simon, the religious leader, he, he tries to miss it. Here's what he says in verse 39 about her. He says, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, if Jesus were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Here's what he's implying. If Jesus were close to God, he would be far from women like this. If you're close to God, that means you have to be far away from sinners because they have no place and they're really just invisible. And we want them to get out of our dinner party and get out of our presence because they've ruined their lives. There's no hope for them. They're meaningless. So people close to God recognize that they're invisible and they keep their distance. But that's not what Jesus did. The irony here is that even as he says, Jesus knew who this was. And the irony is that Jesus answers him. Look at the next verse. And Jesus answering, time out. He didn't say this out loud. He wasn't like, Jesus, do you even know who she is? No, he's thinking this. He's saying this to himself. The irony is he's going, Jesus has no clue who she is. And Jesus hears his thoughts. Let that sink in for a minute. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He has no clue that Jesus knows what he was thinking, mumbling under his breath. So he says, hey, say it, teacher. And he's going to tell a story. It just blows my mind. He says this, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Now, a denarii was basically about $100. It was a day's wage at, at minimum, uh, or day's payment at minimum wage, about $100. So well, what he's saying here is that one owed $50,000 and the other $5,000. What's the natural response if someone owed you either $50,000 or $5,000? We go collect that money and we sit in pretty for a while, aren't we? In fact, let's have a conversation about interest if you can't make the payments on time. But I'm going to be good because I got $5,000 coming from you, I got $50,000 coming from you, and you're going to make every single payment. I've got it tracked. Let's go. And that's why the next verse is so jarring. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. It's unexpected, unearned, undeserved, not what most of us would do. And yet 5,000, gone. 50,000, gone. And then Jesus asked Simon this question. Now, which of them will love him more? I gotta be honest, if somebody forgave me $5,000, I'm gonna love them a lot. If somebody forgave them $50,000, I'm probably love them more, right? Let's just take a quick vote. How many of you say, if somebody forgave you $5,000, you would love them more? Anybody wanna vote for the $5,000? Exactly. How many of you are voting for $50,000? Like somebody forgives me $50,000, I'm gonna love him more. Duh, everybody knows the answer. It's so obvious, which is why Simon's hesitation is kind of weird. He, he says in the next verse, Simon answered the one, I suppose, like you suppose, what do you mean you suppose? Like everybody knows the answer to this, Simon. This is so simple. He says, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. You know, I, I don't know why, but I've often read this story as if Simon knows that Jesus can hear his thoughts and Simon knows that Jesus is about to call him out and he's about to, yeah, I, he has no idea. This guy thinks Jesus is so dumb that he doesn't even know that this woman's a notorious, despicable, rejected, should be invisible sinner. 
He has no clue that Jesus knows his thoughts. Now, he, he kind of gets that he might be about to be trapped. I think that's why he hesitates. Like, I don't know where this conversation is going. I'm not sure if I want to go there. But he, he doesn't know what's coming down the pike. And Jesus is such a brilliant storyteller. Because what Jesus does, he says, yeah, you've judged rightly here. And he's about to show him his hypocrisy, though. His inconsistency. Because, yes, it's so simple. Who's going to love more? fifty or uh, 5000 to $50,000 person. He judged rightly in that case, but he judged wrongly when he judged the woman's actions. So the character of the woman in the story, he judged right. Her actions in real life, he judged wrong. Here's how Jesus explains it. Verse 44, then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? What a question. Because Simon had set up systems and he did everything in his power to not see her, to make her invisible. And so Jesus says, have you noticed her, Simon? And he goes on to say this. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, like you could have used this, $18, but she has anointed my feet with a $370 perfume. He simply calls him out. He, he reframes all the events surrounding the meal. And here's what he's telling Simon. He's saying, Simon, it's not that you were just wrong. Simon, you were actually correct in the fact that you did the bare minimum. In this culture, you didn't have to wipe someone's feet off. You didn't have to anoint them with $18 oil. These were just nice things that you might do to be over the top. He says, Simon, you didn't necessarily do anything wrong. You just did the bare minimum, and her extravagant generosity blows you out of the water. Wow. And then Jesus says this in verse 47. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. The first thing I notice in this is that it's the same word. Jesus used the same word, slightly different tense, to describe the amount of her sins and the amount of her love. Jesus doesn't ignore her sins. He doesn't push them under the rug. He doesn't say, no, you're not as bad as people think you are. He's just like, hey, your sins are many. Everybody knows her sins are many. Everybody got it? Like, her sins are many. He, he's open about her sin. He acknowledges her sin. He doesn't ignore her sin, but the way he handles her sin is way different than the way the religious leaders do because he says, she's forgiven. Now, Jesus didn't forgive her in this moment. All the context, the, the language, here's what it's saying. She was previously forgiven. This explains her incredible display of generosity. She experienced the love of God when she was forgiven. And then that love was naturally displayed through generosity as she wiped his feet and poured out the $370 perfume and went over the top. This was a display of the fact that she had previously been forgiven. But what Jesus is saying is, hey, there's a pattern here. If you're forgiven of much, you love much. If you're forgiven of little, you love little. And what Jesus says next would have just wrecked the room. Oh, they would have been so mad. That's what he says in verse 48. He says this. He looks at the woman, the woman that they want to think is invisible, the woman that nobody wants to say, see. And he says, your sins 
are forgiven. (laughs) And they are angry. Because up to this point, they could kind of miss what he was inferring and he was implying. And maybe he doesn't really mean that this contaminated woman is forgiven. Maybe No, no, no. he says, hey, I just want to insert clarity into this conversation and say that this woman is forgiven. We know they're mad because of how they respond in verse 49. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? who even forgives sins. First, they are mad at the woman. Now they're calling out Jesus. Who is he? He forgives sins. And we need to understand that this woman isn't loving for forgiveness. She's loving out of forgiveness. And they get that. Like, man, she's not trying to earn forgiveness. She could never earn it. He forgave her, and so she's loving as a result of that forgiveness. And Jesus, oh, man, he brings even more clarity to the situation in the last verse. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He says, oh, just in case you're wondering, she's just not forgiven. She's been rescued by faith that was displayed through actions. And now a woman who approached Jesus in pieces walks away in peace. What a story. And we need to understand the tense environment as this party ends. As Jesus is leaving, they're not like... See you next week, Jesus. Thanks. <laughs> that was so cute what you did with the little woman. You know, that was good. No, no, they're mad. He's called out the host. He's embarrassed them. He's recognized the woman that they don't even want to be within like a mile's distance from. They would stay, and then he's letting her touch him. He's saying that she is right with God, and they're just appalled and angry and mad. But not the woman. The woman who showed up in pieces, she walks away in peace because the message from Jesus is clear. He's saying, look, none are too far gone to be reached by Jesus. The more sin, the more the forgiveness. The more the forgiveness, the more the love. And the worse the sinner, the more dramatic the change brought by God's good grace. What a story. So where does this leave us? And if you walked in today and you feel like you've been labeled, you feel like you've been tossed aside, you feel invisible, Jesus notices you and he offers you something, something you could never earn, something you don't deserve. He offers forgiveness. And just like he loved this woman, he loves you. And for those of us who follow Jesus, I think we've got to wrestle with some uncomfortable truths. And I think the first one is this, that Simon shows us that often those who think they know God the best criticize his love the most. Often those of us who think we know God the best, man, I've read the Bible, I've, I know the stories, man, I get it all, I've got all the knowledge in my head. Often those who think they know God the best criticize his love the most. So how would you respond to a woman like this? Ooh, distant eye. Or would you respond like Jesus? There's probably like, why did she have to sneak in here? I wanted her in here from the beginning. And Jesus makes it so clear that no one's too far from him. That he's pursuing us with a love 
that we can't shake. So what happened to this woman is she encountered a love that she couldn't shake, and then she displayed a love that we can't shake. 2,000 years later, we're talking about this story. It's messing with us. It's creating some emotions in us because we have seen the love of Jesus displayed through her. He's reframed generosity for us as a natural display of love. And then, brilliantly, Jesus says, actually, there's, there's one more thing. There's, there's love, there's generosity, but there's one more piece that needs to be intertwined in there. There's forgiveness. <laughs> Think about generosity is there's a difference between admiration and application. Stories of generosity, they inspire us. We're like, man, I want to be more like you. And then we walk away and we do the same thing. Man, I want to be the person who could have gone above and beyond and poured out the $18 stuff, but instead I want to pour out the $370 stuff. I want to respond in love like that. I want to display generosity. I'm so inspired. And then I just live the exact same. And here's what Jesus does. I mean, this is unbelievable. He says, if you have a generosity problem, let's get to the root. The root's not your financial situation. The root's not how much money you make. The root's not a job change. Here's the root of our generosity problems. Forgiveness. That we don't understand how much Jesus has forgiven us. Or if you don't follow Jesus, you don't understand what he wants to forgive you from. We're way more like the woman than we want to admit. Think about it like this. I mean... How many times have we been rude, been mean to our kids? They need a defender. Our children need a defender. Who's their defender? God in heaven. How many times have you been rude to your spouse? Have you been ugly, demeaning, put down your spouse, put down a coworker, talk bad about a boss, had a lustful thought, had an angry thought about somebody? How many times have you acted on those lustful and angry thoughts? All those people that we've harmed, they need defenders. Guess who their defender is? God in heaven. Every single one of those offenses is against him and against people made in his image. And you know what we deserve? We deserve to pay the penalty of every single bad thought, bad action. We deserve to bear the full consequence and weight of every single one of those. But God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Do you see generosity in the story of Jesus? That God gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, should not face the full weight of our sin, but should have eternal life in Jesus, could be forgiven. And so what did Jesus do? He came and he gave. He gave away his time to this woman. He gave away status to this woman. Then he gave away his resources. Then ultimately he gave away his dying breath on the cross. Because the cross was the only way for us to be able to avoid the consequence of our sin and for Jesus to be able to say, your sins are many, (laughs) but I've erased them all. What an offer. If you don't follow Jesus, do you want to follow him? Do you realize the generosity and love that combines into an offer of forgiveness that he puts before you today. And if you do, there's no better day than to surrender to Jesus. To echo Derek's words one more time, it is real. 
And in just a few moments, someone from our prayer team will be by this exit sign. So if you're in the lobby, you can come towards them. If you're in the gathering space, you can go back to them. And they would love to answer your questions or talk with you or right here in your seat in the lobby or in the gathering space where you are. You can just say, Jesus, I am overwhelmed by your love and I want the forgiveness that you offer through the cross. And the woman's story can be our story. (laughs) That we may have walked into this gathering in pieces, but we can walk out of it with peace. And what about those of us who follow Jesus? I think we gotta ask this question. Are we more like the woman or more like Simon? Are we criticizing and distancing ourselves and not responding to his love? Or are we just overwhelmed by how he has forgiven us and therefore generosity is simply flowing out of us? See, here's something that we all need to understand. Generosity is not practiced for forgiveness. Generosity is practiced from forgiveness. And some of you don't follow Jesus because this verse has, or this statement has been misconstrued. Some of you are hesitant to follow Jesus because you've been sold a lie. A lie where people have misinterpreted the word of God and they've said, man, if you just give, then God's going to bless you. Man, write that check and he's going to take care of you. No, no, no. We don't practice generosity for anything. We practice generosity from forgiveness. And that is a huge change. When we get this, then suddenly the question isn't, do I give? It's, oh my goodness, how much do I give? Because I'm overwhelmed by the forgiveness that you offer me. Man, if we have trouble taking the shift from admiration to application and generosity, we need to look in our hearts and say, man, am I self-righteous? Man, have I got some Simon in me? Do I not understand all that Jesus has forgiven me from? And what if, what if we understood that we're so much like this woman? What if we understood how much we've been forgiven and generosity was a natural display of our love and response to how he's loved us? And what if we were a church full of Jesus followers who set generosity goals? A friend of Whitney's and mine, and some of you, he's part of our public church family. His name's not important, but he sets generosity goals. The beginning of this year, he was telling me, man, I set this goal. He's a businessman. He dabbles in some real estate. And we're talking one day and he said, I'm trying to decide if I should buy this house to rent. You know what his deciding factor was? Is this going to help me meet my goal of how much money I'm giving away? Not as it's going to help me in retirement. Not as it's going to get me a vacation. Not as it's going to get me more zeros in the bank account. But man, I pray God has, oh, God has moved in me. He's forgiven me. And I'm going to practice generosity from forgiveness. I just want to make a decision, a financial decision based on a goal I've set. Man, that is a love we can't shake. And what if we did that? So public worship is going to come up. And give us an opportunity just to process this. And I just want to challenge us. I mean, if you don't follow Jesus today, <laughs> it's the day. The offer of forgiveness is on the table. It's just a matter of whether or not you'll accept it. And for those of us who follow Jesus, what if we just at least began to think in terms of generosity goals? 
I mean, that would be a love that people around us couldn't shake. Man, why are you so generous? Why do you give to this? Why? Man, because, you know why I'm generous? Because my father in heaven was generous, and he sent his son, and his son was generous, and he died for me, and he offers me forgiveness. Man, we get to lead people to Jesus through our generosity. Just like this woman has led us to Jesus through her generosity. So let's think about what that might mean in our lives. Jesus This story blows my mind. The way you handled this woman by just calling out her sin and then calling her to have a new label, the label of forgiven, it's really overwhelming. I pray that for people that don't follow you, that aren't sure if they follow you, Jesus, I just ask that you would just let them accept that label of forgiven, that they would surrender to you. And for those of us who follow you, I pray that you would let us get to the root of our generosity issues. Man, and help us see how much we've been forgiven.